0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Breakfast, bringing you some of the highlights and conversations we've had during the year.
1: So, next up, we have Gabby Alamin, who is the Secretary of the Australian Western Sahara Association. Um, and she's going to be talking to us about not only what's going on in Western Sahara in Morocco, well, in the area that is claimed by Morocco, um, she will also be talking about a film that's screening as part of the Refugee Week it's called Rifles or Graffiti, which is a documentary that chronicles Morocco's occupation of, of the territory um, So before we get into it Can you tell us a bit about the work that the Australian Western Sahara Association does? Yes uh, Good morning everybody um,
2: Yes, yeah, so at Western Sahara Australia Western Sahara Association um, We try to um, increase the awareness uh, About Western Sahara and the Sahrawis Especially um, here in Australia as it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's far from, from Western Sahara so not too many people know about Western Sahara and we also um, promote the uh, self-determination for the Sahrawi people.
1: And so I suppose let's, let's talk about that, so what happened in Western Sahara? Not many people uh, would know much about it, so could you give us a, a small history lesson?
2: Yes, sure uh, So Western Sahara is uh, a non-self-governing Territory It's located in North Africa And uh, according to us It's colonized by Morocco And uh, so in 1975 Sahara was A previously Spanish colony Spain left Sahara and then uh, Morocco came and invaded Western Sahara um, The uh, the United um, Sorry, the International Court of Justice uh, had ruled that Western Sahara um, and the Sahrawi should have referendum for self-determination. However, Morocco um, never did that. And uh, so until now, it's still, uh, now it's like Moroccan, um, Moroccan um, uh, basically, Moroccans are occupying Western Sahara. Now it's like Moroccan colony. And the Sahrawi people are still still struggling to um, to vote for their self-determination. Mm,
1: um, and um, so, the Moroccan in, in 75, when they when they did uh, come to uh, colonise uh, Western Sahara, the King, King Hassan II, who was the King of Morocco at the time, used a, an, an interesting way to colonise the the territory, something called the Green March.
2: Yes, yes, all the Sahrawis, we know that, we know and we remember the Green March. Uh, so basically what happened is that Sahrawis are originally nomads. Uh, so what Hassan Hassan II did is uh, he brought a lot of Moroccan settlers and he marched to, towards Western Sahara. Uh, there is an interview, a famous interview for uh, of the king saying that... Um, if there is any resistance by the Polizari or the Sahrawis, he said that the expression, we would eat them. So what happened is, uh, Sahrawis did not want to be part of Morocco. And what uh, Morocco did is, uh, he start bombing, they started bombing people with Nepal. And so people f- uh, fled the country, flee their home, homeland, and they became refugees in Algeria. A lot of them died. A lot of civilians, lot of women and children died, including my uncle. Um, yeah, so it's a, he called it a Green March, but it was
1: actually just genocide. Mm. And now there's still a lot of people that live in the refugee camps in Tindouf, in, in Algeria.
2: Yes, yes. So uh, the Sahrawi population now is divided. Um The half of the Sahrawis live under Moroccan occupation in Western Sahara. The other half, including my family, uh, they live in refugee camps in Algeria and still waiting for a referendum for the self-determination so they can go back to their homeland.
1: And the referendum was supposed to take place in the 90s?
2: Yeah, it was um, supposed to take place after the ceasefire in 1991. However, until today, it hasn't been organised and the reason is uh, the Sahrawis or the Polisario Front, which is uh, the representative of the Sahrawi people, and Morocco, they couldn't agree on who is actually Sahrawi to vote on the referendum. Uh, the United Nations tried to organize it in 1998 19, 19, um, and 1999, however they failed. And until now, it's still, um, you know, Sahrawis are still refugees.
1: Um, and there's more and more Moroccan settlers that come in. in so Western, Sah- uh, Western Sahara is, 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 is divided by an almost 3,000-kilometre war, the Berm, And so one part is controlled by the Polisario Front, uh, Sahawis, and the other part is occupied territories, the Moroccan yes. occupied territories. And uh, from my understanding, there's more and more Moroccan settlers that come south yes so
2: what's uh what's going on there is uh morocco is moroccans or Mar- i would say i wouldn't say moroccans i would say um the Mor- morocco the government are trying to um moroccanize western sahara and that's uh so they try to bring more settlers and they try to give them um like benefits like housing um work so they can stay there in western sahara and you know that's why that's one of the ways to control the territory but they are not Sahrawis um, so we call them the settlers and I think they should go back to Morocco
1: mm. and, and, and what about the Sahrawi populations in occupied territory, in, in the occupied zones?
2: Yes, so there are a lot of Sahrawis there um, that's actually half of the Sahrawis there uh, Sahrawis there are they suffer human rights violations um, they don't have usually they don't have jobs, they get rejected for being Sahrawis um, there is not even one university in Western Sahara not even one university for them when they get sick to get treatment they have to go to Morocco cities Moroccan cities to get treatment so um, the population there they are really angry they are not happy about what's going on and uh, they are just like oh, they also want the referendum
1: Mm. And so, can you tell us a bit about um, rifles or graffiti? What's the message behind?
2: That? Yes. So the message um, behind the movie is uh, so the movie shows um, the two the two Sahrawi population, the one in the refugee camp and the one in the in the occupied Western Sahara. Um, and the message is that Sah- we Sahrawis are really peaceful. We believe in non-violent uh, way of resistance. Um, however, it has been more than 40 years that we are st- still waiting for the referendum, and some people are getting tired. They, they just enough for them. So some people are um, leaning towards going back to the war. Um, however, in general, we we want uh, this conflict to be, you know, resolved peacefully.
1: Mm. And I suppose if people want to get involved in the association or find out more well, what can they do
2: yes so um i encourage people to come and watch the movie it's a uh, very interesting in the movie um the sahara where they speak spanish arabic french and english so it's very interesting um and uh, so also they can get involved if they can google the western sahara australia western sahara association and uh you know give us a message or call us and uh, we'll be able to help them.
1: Okay, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you for having me and uh, I hope that you guys come and
0: watch the movie. I I will
1: be be there. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you. you.
0: You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Breakfast, bringing you some of the highlights and our favourite conversations that we've had during the year.
1: Okay, and now we've got Race Rage in the studio. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I no, you're more than welcome. So, how did Race Rage come to be?
3: Um, so basically, like I had been doing uh, spoken word for quite a while, quite a few years, um, and a lot. Most of my sort of poetry and writing really concentrated on issues around race. And yeah, I'm sort of the first kind of. I guess musical performance stuff I'd done was really just like parody songs I did a song with a friend of mine about um everyone always saying I look like Rihanna and I kind of really don't um so that was sort of like that was kind of around about like 2012 2014 and then yeah I never really did much like musical performance until I started doing um like backup vocals for my best friend's um project Katie Spit and that kind of gave me a bit more confidence to be like, ah, oh, okay, maybe I can sing. And then, um, I thought I'd sort of channel my writing more into rap. And yeah, I guess I was really consciously wanting to, to do hip hop and to collaborate, um, primarily, well, it was supposed to be only with other artists of color which actually has proven way more challenging than I ever anticipated. So I've ended up like not really keeping to that, but still I guess trying to prioritise um, creating those connections and trying Mm -hmm. to – because I I can't make beats myself. So trying to, um, yeah, yeah, use beats from artists who I'm politically aligned with and, yeah, try and say important messages.
1: Yeah. So, you, so you just mentioned that it was quite difficult to collaborate with people yeah. uh, sort of colour. So, do you want to elaborate then? Um. I
3: mean. I guess I'm not the most social person in the world. So that's, maybe my experience is different from from others. But I guess. Um. Yeah. I guess I was kind of looking within within my small queer bubble. Um. And I guess kind of thinking about it, maybe it's the fact that. Like trying to collaborate with people that maybe have less resources and less time than a lot of uh, white folks who I know like I, like I kind of um, my process would generally be I would like you know get inspired and, and write like a chunk of, of music and be really excited like not music, um, lyrics and be really excited about it and then kind of go onto online spaces um, like cutie pop groups and things like that and be like hey like do any beat makers have any beats that they'd be wanting to collaborate with or share um and I kind of, like, you know, be putting a lot out there and wouldn't often get that many responses back. Um, Yum God, actually, is someone who was really amazing and I have collaborated a lot with. um, And Black Girl Magic that you played before, um he produced that. That was his beats. Um But, yeah, I kind of tended to have a lot of, like, white musician friends that would be like, oh, like, I have all these or, like, yeah, like, just kind of would be really generous. And, yeah, I guess thinking about it, I kind of was like, okay, I guess people that maybe have a little bit more privilege do have more leisure time to kind of maybe be able to focus on like a whole bunch of side projects aside from their primary musical projects or i don't know it's just a theory of mine (laughs)
4: And, and maybe the political alignments Tend to work on that level too because if you don't have the financial freedom or even the time, it's sometimes very, very hard to express yourself in that way. They've chosen Mm. the beats and the music to express themselves,
3: so just sort of, yeah, it
4: might have made it a bit difficult. For yeah. Some,
3: for some groups as well. I feel like white guilt has also been oh, a yes. large <laughs> thing of it. <laughs> of white people are like, I'm so sorry, yeah. <laughs> which, 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 which is great because there are, you know, we, we
2: were talking before about like even the issue with refugees, so that a lot of people here want to help.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's not at all to no, so, um, shade the people I've <laughs> collaborated with who I have so much love for, but yeah.
1: But it's a thing. <laughs> it is a thing. Um, so you sort of described yourself as sort of like post-internet rapper. What do you mean by that? <laughs>
3: so, that's um, funny. That kind of phrase came to mind because I was like, I don't know anything about music. What is my genre? And I was talking to um, Katie from Katie Spit. Um, about like what the hell to call myself and we had this conversation because <laughs> she's like I don't know like a social media musical genius and who gets all these things that I just don um, 't like have no idea about but oh, we kind of had a conversation about like she suggested that phrase and I was like that sounds super cool but what does that mean and she was sort of saying well I guess the fact that like the context that you're operating in is that like, kind of existing in a time where all of your music's been created, like, drawing on... I guess I draw on a lot of internet references for sort of, like, um, wordplay that I use in my lyrics and also just the way that I'm creating music is basically completely online. I'm going into online spaces and, like, asking artists to collaborate. I'm getting sent tracks online. Um, I then put my music up online. Like, everything I kind of do I totally rely on the internet for and it's a really different... Um, musical space and I guess previously where people would I guess be I don't know maybe handing out physical flyers and like I am playing live music and going to gigs and supporting other artists and making connections that way but pretty much all the opportunities I tend to get are coming to me through like Internet sort of thing. So yeah, I thought that phrase kind of worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. totally. yeah. Um,
1: And yeah. So just before we heard Black Girl Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to ask, like, what inspired you with that track?
3: Yeah. So that that's kind of one of my favourite tracks that I've actually written. Um, it was it was sort of like a a track that was intended to be like a declaration of love and a passing down of wisdom to one of my sisters well i love both my sisters of course but to um, my sister who is also black um and it's like i guess i saw them going through a whole bunch of body image issues going through a whole bunch of issues like i guess becoming like a, a young person becoming a teenager um in the world as like a mixed race black person and coming up against I guess a lack of visibility a lack of feeling like you adhere to white beauty standards and and what that means and I really wanted to I guess to package the the wisdom and the knowledge that I've sort of picked up along the way after struggling through all the exact same things and talk about the skin that we're in as as biracial black first nations people the things that like we might you know, feel sensitive about in terms of our features are actually the mani- physical manifestation of our ancestors. And that's really incredible. And that's really beautiful. And if the way that you think about beauty doesn't hold space for that and doesn't honor that, then what is the point of it? If, yeah, I have this um quote in my bathroom that I'm not really sure where it's from, but uh, I can't remember exactly what it says, but it says um, something about like, like if beauty isn't what we ourselves are then like what's the use for it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i tried to i guess phrase that in a way that felt natural to me and write a song about that yeah that Mm -hmm. would be a tool it's
5: great we heard it it was a great track and the way you described what you were trying
4: to achieve with it captures you know a sense of um i guess feeling you know i've got a daughter who i find she probably goes through the same like we did her hair the other day Mm -hmm. and Got to school and she took it out because yeah. she's sick of people saying, "Oh, what wonderful hair you've got," and that's her yeah. main focus of people yeah, do. So it
6: absolutely. starts quite early, and for you to
4: see that within a younger sibling, yeah. and right, and as you said, you like both your sisters, but this one was one that sort of um was amused towards writing a song yeah. to give her that.
1: Well, especially in you know such a white supremacist context, like mm. so you know you're told like from a young age that the sort of acceptability and the norm is is white, you know. Yeah. So absolutely. especially when it comes to like hair and that
2: yeah. sort of thing.
1: Mm. The little whole, things that you take for granted as yeah, a person. But Well, yeah. and also there's a whole thing about hair. Like I remember yeah. my aunt doing doing my hair when I was a kid, like braiding my hair and stuff. And then you get these sort of like weird comments to people, people that just don't get it you know and yeah. it's
2: mm, people across the street
5: yeah, like old yeah. people they yeah. don't touch you when you're like yeah they don't
1: touch me get you hands totally. me yeah anyway we'll play a bit of Ben speaking any threats to
3: white authority is now the copretality there's
1: a bit of Bit right. from burn <laughs> um so that's part of a hip-hop musical called the change did you want to tell us a bit about the change
3: absolutely yeah um that track was yeah a collaboration with izzy brown from combat wombat and it's part of like one of the most incredible nourishing like important community projects i've ever been part of it's like a really political radical uh hip-hop theater musical production that is are coming together of a whole bunch of different um, people from all different communities, um, creating this sort of um, story-sharing narrative that's set kind of in this like post-apocalyptic future with like a whole bunch of sort of little kids sitting around this um, campfire talking about um, the past and their ancestors and the struggles that brought them to like this present day kind of utopian, dystopian, I'm not really <laughs> sure like future um, and the stories that we're kind of acting out is all different scenes that is played by people mainly from those communities so I mean I'm not from Palm Island but I'm indigenous and so I'm playing Kylie Demaji, um, the activist and sister of Moranji Dumaji who was um, murdered in custody um, that sparked the Palm Island riots so I'm in a scene about that and also a scene with Uncle Robbie Thorpe and Aniviv Malo. Of, like, the Aboriginal tent embassy. Then there's also scenes with the West Papuan community talking about their struggle, about their experience of massacre in Indonesia and coming over here in the flotilla. They've um, actually built a um, replica canoe that is in the same style as the canoe that they came over in. And there's a whole bunch of, like, elders and kids from the community doing traditional dance and songs as well. It's a really powerful scene. Um, Then there's also some Kenyan young people doing a scene about their refugee experience and another scene about other refugee experiences. And it all sort of comes to... We've had two different sort of manifestations of what we've done with it. The first was sort of a smaller showcase and the second was more of an interactive show that we did at the underground car park where the um, audience kind of did this like walk through um, and kind of had this experience of going through border security that replicated what some of the refugees in the production had experienced and yeah all this it's kind of like this really cool hip hop musical with all different ages all different communities telling their own like stories and there's also like the vocal boogie choir um, which is like a choir of like older people that um, meet at Collingwood Neighbourhood House and the Neighbourhood House Band and so it's just like this mishmash of all different people collaborating um, in this incredible way that I've felt really honoured to be part of and so we're looking at evolving it further and taking it to Fringe this year. Yeah,
1: so I suppose I suppose rap is, you know, as as you've sort of just described it, you know, it's always been political mm. and... Uh, and and that 's your sort of focus, right yeah. and i 've heard like in the music industry, and that, yeah uh, talking to people and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that there's a lot of um tokenism,
3: yeah, absolutely yeah. that 's definitely been my experience um yeah, I feel like it 's a really interesting time, especially the the sort of communities um, bubble that I tend to perform in which is in the queer scene like I guess the more sort of politically minded queer scene where people are trying really hard to be inclusive and like to work towards having diverse spaces and prioritizing people of color nowadays but I feel like yeah it it is maybe not at, at the point that I would love it to be so I feel like there is a lot of a kind of tick box mindset that especially when I was first starting out I would find myself playing shows that just made absolutely no sense I'd be like on an all-white lineup of like metal and noise bands and then me (laughs) and I'd be like like, okay cool you you needed a black one yeah (laughs) and just like yeah really bizarre situations like being asked to DJ at an all-white like squat party and I'm like I don't DJ I'm not a DJ they're being like oh just just throw something together it'll be fine like literally just trying to make sure that they had you know a person with a disability like a non-binary person a black person on the lineup and I'm super convenient because I you know fit so many (laughs) oppression boxes that I kind of just like yeah I would find myself just in situations where it was so obvious that it had nothing to do with the merit of my music, um, which is actually really hard, especially when I was starting out. I would, I've kind of found myself in a really strange situation where, like, I only had like two tracks, and as soon as people heard that I was doing music, I was just like being all these people were like trying to put me on lineups before, and I knew they didn't know at all what I did. They'd mm. never seen me play, they had no idea, and I was completely just there because of my attributes as someone that you know could make their lineup diverse so I feel like now that I kind of have been around the block a bit I've been playing for quite a few years now that I kind of can can see that um Mm -hmm. and kind of yeah can address that a little bit more and have a little bit more room to think about whether I'm going to come away from an opportunity feeling quite gross and like uh that that was for like a yuck reason or whether it's actually going to be something that i'm also going to get something out of or that is going to be like a worthwhile thing for me to take part in mm, yes. yeah yeah
6: um, owning your own performance
3: yeah so.
1: yeah mm. i suppose we have to sort of wrap it up but like thank you so much for coming on um Let's and
7: take out with
1: yeah, Silence and, and sapphires yeah oh, thanks so much for
7: having yeah. me thank, <laughs> you thank you for coming you. in our pleasure
5: the song is coming. I'm just letting it build up a bit. Okay. <laughs>
1: um, oh, did you want to just, as it builds up, um, tell us a bit about it in, like, two sentences? <laughs> yeah,
5: absolutely.
3: It's a song that I wrote when I was in a really kind of dark space, and it's about overcoming, I guess, um, the challenges in your life and trying to draw strength from that and draw lessons from that and turn it into creative energy. So live without scruples. No shame, no stigma, revolution is truthful. You're
0: listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Now, we're really lucky to be joined by Jules Kim, CEO of Scarlet Alliance, who's going to chat with us about uh, some of the problems with the My Health Record system.
6: Yeah, hi. How are you going?
0: Morning. So I was wondering, just for listeners who maybe are just tuning in, would you be able to Mm -hmm. give us a bit of an overview of the My um, My Health Record
1: system?
6: yeah sure. look uh so the my health record i, I mean one of the things though is that, it, that uh, is um, is basically a uh, electronic health record, and the my health record system is a centralised database that retains all of the my health records. Uh, the system's been around for more than five years and, in fact, if you've actually ever been to a, a emergency in the hospital, you will have a My Health Record created for you, as many people are discovering when they're trying to opt out. Um, and it's uh, it, it, um, it, it, since the 16th of July until the 15th of October, you'll have an opportunity to prevent a My Health Record being created on your behalf. Um, and um, so... It, it's what's what's called the opt out period uh once it's created um, you know you, you can uh, It will be it means your health information can be shared by a, a wide variety of um you know health professionals from your pharmacist to your podiatrist to your psychologist and so you you need to actively lock that information if you don't want um, that to be accessed.
0: Yeah, and so there've been some changes announced in the past um, couple of days, and we were sort of mm-hmm. we had we ran through them a bit earlier in the show. But could you again um, just give a bit of an overcap, and also do you, yeah, do you think that they go far enough?
6: Yeah, look, I mean the changes are welcome, but I think that, that there are still issues, and in particular issues for um, populations, um, communities such as ours, like sex workers. Um, And also, I mean, there's there's also been issues raised about the fact that um, it still doesn't operate on an express consent system. You know, it, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, once you your my health record uh, is created, it's by default set on the lowest security setting to allow the widest sharing of your health records, um, which which means that you need to actively lock each of your Documents that you don't want shared or each of your records that you don't want shared, so you need to set your privacy control. and I guess that sort of assumes that um, you know it, it's sort of literacy about you know sometimes very complex medical health information and assessing the sensitivity of each of those, and then actually kind of going through the task of of locking each of those. Um, I think the Digital Health Agency said that um, currently only two out of a 1,000 people are actually activating um, privacy controls, uh, which kind of gives you an indication of of what's potentially involved um, in in doing so. Uh, The Minister has announced that potentially that they're going to uh, add another month to the opt-out period and that... um, at least that they're going to there are real world arrangements in the sense that, that, that you are going to require us that government agencies accessing your health records will now require a subpoena to do so. Um the other significant change is uh that uh it it will um Sorry, it's quite early in the morning. <laughs> I've just gotten off the plane from Amsterdam um, in South Australia, so you have to excuse me. Um, yeah, um, and um, the other significant change is that now you can actually delete. Before it was called effectively delete, which meant that if you ever kind of uh, create, it, once the My Health record was created for you, um, you could never actually delete that, and and those records were to be kept by the government for 130 years. So I think that made it very difficult for people who maybe even just wanted to check it out, because um, once it was created, you could never delete it, and uh, that's one of the other changes that's been announced by the Minister, that you can, um, in fact, delete, not just effectively Mm. delete
0: Yeah, which is, I mean, definitely an important change, but um, obviously there are still so many risks um and concerns around the My Health Record system. Because I mentioned yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the conversation um has been focused on privacy and data security. But what I really want to ask you about is about the increased um risk of criminalisation of certain people in certain communities, of um you know increased stigma and increased barriers to disclosure and accessing health. Um but, but before I do that, I just wondered could you give us a bit of an overview about your organisation?
6: Sure. So Scarlet Alliance is the Australian Sex Workers Association. So we're the uh, national peak body representing sex workers, sex worker organisations and projects and um, and um, networks. Um, and we have been, around since 1989, everyone um, involved in Scarlet Alliance is also themselves a sex worker. Um, and that's on every level, from our governance to our volunteers um, to all our staff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, um, involved in kind of advocacy policy and representation, um, around, um, sex work and as well as, um, lobbying for law reform on, um, uh, on, um, sex work laws, which is still, um, unfortunately pretty bad around Australia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, Yeah, so on that note of advocacy, you know, you released a really great briefing paper on the My Health Record system that outlines some Mm -hmm. of the, um, yeah, some of the things, I guess, that sex workers might want to consider. Could you run us through some of the, yeah, some of the risks that you feel are present um, with this system, particularly for the sex worker community?
6: Sure. Look, I mean, I think, um, you know, given the context of the minister's announcement, um, I guess some of that has shifted, but it's still that the, the risks are still present for us because uh, you know we, we uh recently had done the research project on, on um stigma in in healthcare um, as well as kind of in the ways in which sex workers navigate stigma with um, the Centre for Social Research and Health. Um, one of the main strategies that sex workers use is is kind of um, you know selectively disclosing. So you know you might have a doctor that you kind of are seeing um, for that related to your work, and but you don't necessarily want your podiatrist or your you know or, or whoever else. To know um, about your sex work, there is still such pervasive stigma and discrimination against sex workers, um, and uh, one of the kind of main perpetrators were was actual healthcare system, um, and you know we've, we've had many reports of uh, sex workers, you know um, that sort of. Seeing um, sort of mental health professionals, let's say, and it's you know always coming back to the sex work and um, and yeah you know the sex work being kind of pathologised um, by healthcare providers. So I think um, you know it, it, it is really important. Um, our identity protection is really important. And not only that, it's, you know, I think the My Health record becomes akin to a form of registration, uh, because, you know, in, um, some states and territories, there is still registration of sex workers. In fact, yesterday in the ACT, a bill just passed to remove registration of sex workers, recognizing the significant, um, barriers that it poses for sex workers, um, given that, you know, we are, um, still criminalized in, in many aspects and um you know uh depending on the type of work that we do um and uh so you, you know i think uh having a permanent record of your sex work um can be used against you and we have seen it used against our members in in really kind of unrelated ways to our health like so you know being a sex worker has been used against people in child custody cases in future employment prospects comes up in you know um uh, in so, like, if they want to, uh, get a job in the future, like working with children, for example, um, and, so, you know, because of that, um, stigma and discrimination against sex workers, I think, you know, there are, uh, real concerns for having a permanent record of, um, the fact that, um, that, that you are a sex worker and, and a record that, um, I think one of the flaws of the, the My Health record is that, um, it doesn't, uh, you know, I think that people have spoken about how it does, um, you know, if anyone accesses it, 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 there's a record of the fact that they access it. In fact, the access, is it only shows the access of the organisation or the, um, you know, um, entity that's kind of accessed it. So, not the person who's accessed your information. So, I, I think, you know, um, so it does, it, it, in essence, provide a bit of privacy the people that might be accessing the record, but less so for um, the people with the record. So mm, I it's almost ironic, is, um, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yeah, um, and and you know, unfortunately, we do have very inconsistent laws around mm. sex work, and they vary state by state. So somebody might be working perfectly legally. Let's say, for example, in New South Wales, where sex work is decriminalised, and potentially move. Um, to, like for example, South Australia or WA, where it's still criminalised, and um, and that their health records might be, um, you know, um, create issues for them um, moving into a jurisdiction where um, sex work is criminalised. Um, also, we have different laws for different types of sex work. So, you know, uh, it might be legal to be, for example, a, a private sex worker, but uh, illegal to be a street-based sex worker. Um, as it is in, in most jurisdictions. So I think, um, you know, uh, for that reason, that, and, and also uh, our health is actually legislated under the criminal law in some jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So it, I think that, that that poses legitimate concerns for sex workers in, in, in um, the creation of a My Health Record
0: yeah absolutely um and really shows the inadequacy of a you know of a national system being imposed um when there are so many inconsistencies and discrepancies across jurisdictions um mm, and absolutely. in those you know in those gaps there are such risks um in terms of the impact on people's everyday lives um and their health yeah, and well-being mm. um and just briefly, I know that the Sex Workers Outreach Project did a survey in relation to um, the My Health
6: Record. Would you be able to tell us about mm-hmm. that briefly? Yeah, sure. Look, you know, and there was a lot of interest in the My Health Records because, I mean, you know, sex workers as a community are, um, as I said, you know, kind of used to um, having um, experience kind of pretty negative experiences in the healthcare system. So, you know, I, I know that they had um, a lot of uh, responses in their um, my Health uh, Record survey. Um, and, you know, I think predominantly the feeling of the sex worker community is that um, it would be safer in many cases for us to um, opt out. And, uh, I mean, I think it also um, speaks to the lack of education and public awareness that's been kind of done around the issue too. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think that it, um, largely the information that's come out has been through media and through um, NGOs and community organisations and activists that have raised concerns about... Um, issues with my health records it hasn't been to any kind of informed consent campaign by the government um so i think you know uh that that's also kind of deeply problematic um because i think you know given the information that we had about my health records had it not been for the kind of activism of um of various quarters that it's um probably a lot of people would have um, had a record with um, serious concerns, you know, um, and that could have um, negatively affected them in the future.
0: Yeah, and I think that really raises um, or shows the importance of, you know, grassroots um, community advocacy and organising in raising people's awareness um, of, yeah, things that the government is doing, essentially, um, that they're sort of Mm. trying to get to slip under the radar. And um, I wish we had time as well to talk about, you know, because all these impacts on um, the sex work community that we've been speaking about, so many of them are also relevant um, for so many other communities, such as people living with HIV, for trans and gender mm-hmm. diverse people, for people, um, you know, with mental health conditions and for immigrants as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we're, maybe we can, in the show another time, we can, um, we might try and unpack some of this further, because I think this is you know, really important. But to end up, because we are running out of time, how can people? We'll find out more about Scarlet Alliance.
6: Um, yes, yeah, so we have our website, which is www.scarletalliance.org.au. That's one T. Um, and, uh, you know, we uh, have uh, a Twitter as well. So you can find out um, ways and, and, of course, you can feel free to contact us, um, that's, uh, if you can, which you can access through um, our uh, website and our Twitter.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much Jules for joining us this morning.
6: Thank you very much. Have a great day.
0: And that was Jules Kim, CEO of Scarlet Alliance. You're listening to 3CR. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf, or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts academics, writers, activists, and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonisation,
1: sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked
0: away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune in to Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am starting the 8th of January, 855am
1: or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details.
0: You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Right now we're going to jump into an interview with Andre Dow, who is a writer of fiction and non-fiction. He is the co-founder of Behind the Wire, an oral history project documenting people's experience of immigration detention, and the deputy editor of New Philosopher. He is also a qualified lawyer and has worked with asylum seekers and refugees in a legal capacity. This morning, we're going to be chatting about the Manus Recording Project Collective and their work, How Are You Today?, which is part of an exhibition at the Ian Potter Gallery, which runs until this Sunday, 28th of October. Good morning, Andre.
4: Hi, Anne. How are you?
0: I'm well. I was wondering to start with, would you just be able to give us a bit of an introduction to this really amazing um, collective and their work and your involvement in it? How are you today?
4: Sure. So the collective comprises six men, um, five of whom are currently um, detained on Manus Island, um, and another man who's recently um, moved from Manus to Port Moresby, um, but he's still in the same sort of um, perilous situation as the other um, five men. So the six men are Samad, Shemindan, Kazem, Bahad, Aziz and Beruz. Um And the Manus Recording Project Collective, um, essentially the idea is that each of these men make a recording each day that's 10 minutes long um, and they send that to uh, three of us here in, in Melbourne, so Michael Green, John Chia and myself. Um, and the 10-minute recordings um, can be of anything that the men choose. So uh, the idea is that it's just um, a 10-minute recording that in some way captures um, some aspect of their of their life in detention um, or their life in limbo on manna. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's been running since July, and um, there's a, re- a new recording every day, so that um, by the end of the um, the exhibition, there'll be 14 hours of these recordings.
0: Yeah, and how did this come about?
4: Uh, so it started off, actually, um, with a podcast called The Messenger that um, Michael, John, and um, and I worked on with the Wheeler Centre, um, and that was with um, Abdul Aziz Muhammad, uh, one of the men on Manus, um, and... Coming out of that, um, James Parker and Joel Stern, who curated the exhibition at the In Potter Museum, um, approached us to use some of the uh, archive material from that um, podcast. But we actually thought that we wanted to work with something a bit different um, and, and make something a bit more contemporaneous. So um, in the messenger, the recordings are often that, that you hear in the podcast were often made um, quite a while before they aired, and we wanted to do something that, um, where the delay was much shorter, maybe one or two days, sometimes the recordings are made on the same day that they get played in the gallery.
5: Mm.
0: yeah, which is something that's so it, it it's really incredible as a listener, the way that you you know you hear these voices and and the way that time is working there, like it's so recent, it really does something to. I don't know conventional ideas around like proximity and distance and the way that you know the men and all people who are detained on Manus and Nauru get represented in the Australian media, and that you know the, the need um, to maintain that distance in order to maintain you know whether it's apathy or disengagement. There's something about the proximity of listening to someone's voice only yesterday or even a few hours ago that is incredibly powerful.
4: Yeah, and I think there's something in particular about the audio form, and and we chose. 10 minutes um, as well because it turns out 10 minutes is quite a long time to mm-hmm. sit um, or stand in a gallery and, and listen, um, especially when, as with most of the recordings, there is not necessarily a lot of narrative to, to hook into. Um, I mean, sometimes the men do speak directly to the audience, but often they'll also just be re- recording, um, perhaps themselves making coffee or cleaning the oven or... Um, listening to music or, um, you know, trying to get to sleep. And I think that sort of duration, the 10 minutes, requires the audience to listen in a way that maybe um, they're not used to listening to, so they might be more used to listening to a political message, a really direct political message. Um, And I think that this kind of listening, um, this work perhaps, require something different of the audience and yeah and I think it does do something different to that feeling of distance and proximity because um, as Samad um, said to me just the other day in a message um, he felt one of the things that he really liked about being a part of this project was the uh, the feeling that people were spending 10 minutes of their day with him mm. so and often his recordings are you know him listening to the music in his room and mm. I think that kind of it to the heart of the work, this idea of spending a bit of time um, in it.
5: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, and because, you know, on the um, the eavesdropping liquid architecture website, there's, you know, there's an, sort of a, an archive or a list of, or a brief description of all the recordings. And as I was reading through them, you know, some of them are so incredibly, um, if one want to a word, you know, banal or everyday, you mm-hmm. know, for example, there's like, have them, like, on Monday, making a capsicum mushroom and chicken pizza or... Um, Samad yesterday trying to study while recovering from a cold, you know, they're just like very everyday um, experiences that, you know, a lot of listeners would be able to identify with. And I feel like that that familiarity um and that everydayness seems to be really important and so different to so many of the media representations that get so much airtime, um, in mainstream Australian media of, um, you know, the immigration prisons, you know, images or sounds of horror, of suffering, or, you know, at the moment, you know, we're talking very necessarily about the critically ill kids, but there, there's so much, um, power in, yeah, spending 10 minutes with someone's everyday. Could you speak to that a bit or that, that choice, again, yeah, to really focus on um, these everyday experiences and what the aim of, I guess, yeah, of the project is in that regard?
4: Yeah, and I guess, um, look, the, we would never want to minimise the horrors of, of what these men have gone through and what the other people who've been detained in the offshore detention centres have gone through. Um, but, you know, I guess that that those horrors are available for people to read and listen and, and, and watch. Um, and they have been for some time now um, through you know, the really tireless work of both the people who are detained and, and the people advocating for them. Um, and I guess what we're trying to do with this work is something a little bit different. Um, and it was interesting that um, both Aziz and Baruz have said about participating that um, they felt like Art was a language that was available to them um, that allowed them to express something different about their situation, um, and that, and I guess they were comparing that to say, the media and political work that they've been doing.
6: Mm. I
4: thought that was really interesting. Um, trying to work out what it is about presenting this, these recordings as art um, that perhaps maybe people are you know approach a gallery with a different mindset and maybe they're open to more ambiguity. Um, and more nuanced and I think if you approach the work that way you actually get a better understanding of what most of their days mm. are like because they're not I think they're punctuated by the horrors and and some of the recordings they touch on uh, the self-harm and the mental health issues um, amongst the men but generally from you know day to day and minute to minute it Um, simply trying to fill in time as they wait and I think that's really gets to the heart of what they've been going through for the last five years is this kind of interminable waiting
0: yeah and yeah I think that that's but, yeah that was a point that I was thinking of asking you about around yeah this shift from that we 're perhaps used to seeing these these messages within a um, political or or media context and then shifting into the space of art um, does something really different and really important um, but on that note, I wanted to also sort of ask more broadly because I know that you yourself um, you know, are qualified as a lawyer, and but now also work in these these other spaces of, um, I guess you know more either creative or with words and with writing. Um, would you be able to talk more about I guess yeah your your own involvement in the project and also what you see about um, the the yeah, I guess, why why we might want to sort of move beyond um, merely, like, legal or political way of approaching these things.
4: Sure. Um, so another um, long-running project that I've been involved in is called Behind the Wire. So How Are You Today and Behind the Wire kind of related but um, slightly separate things. And um, with Behind the Wire, which is an oral history organisation that tries to document the experiences, the lived experiences of people with... Um, been through human rights um, abuses. Uh, that started out um, essentially because um, myself and uh, our friend, Sienna Murrow, um, both lawyers, and um, I guess found that we, in, in working with people in that legal context, um, came across people with much more to say than what was sort of usable, in a in, in the legal setting, and um, I guess as was a, born out of a bit of a frustration at having to cut people's stories down and, and reduce them to, um, you know, what, what a court or what a tribunal um, thinks is important and not very often that's not what people think is important about their own stories. And then, so that was, I think, working outside of law, um, working creatively, was partly about... Um, Acknowledging people's agency to, to tell their stories um, in a way that the legal setting isn't really geared to do um, So that for me that was the importance personally of, of, of doing this work with um, To recognize people's
0: ability to, to tell their own story. Yeah, absolutely and also and also maybe to create an archive of those stories as well um, because, you know, both the recordings change every day and, you know, listeners can experience them when they go into the gallery. But am I right that is there also going to be an archive created of all these recordings?
4: Yes, definitely. So, yeah, as I said at the beginning, there's going to be 14 hours of recordings by the end of the project. Um, that's yeah, 84 separate recordings. Um, and we'll definitely they'll definitely exist in an archive in some form. And I mean, that's something we're actually thinking about at the moment is exactly how to present the archive um, and potentially where it it, it may be um, exhibited again, um, perhaps as a full archive. Um, mm. And what kind of spaces, you know, that's a question that we've been asking is what sort of spaces should it be in uh, you know, museums and galleries again or... Um, At the moment, actually, the the current iteration of the work is also being staged in the foyer of the Melbourne Law School, Mm
5: -hmm. which
4: has been an interesting um, experience to to see in a very different space in the gallery because that's a space where people are just moving through to get to their classes, to get to work. Um, And that's so in that context, the work is a real interruption of people's days, which um, has been um, very interesting but very different to... um, I guess the, the more sacred space, if you like, of the mm. gallery. So, yeah, the archive I think is something that we'll continue to work on and think about how to put the best present it. But um, we do think that those as, I think uh, yeah of real importance because there's not anything else that has recorded life on manner in quite the same way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it's, there seems to be something so important about, you know, an archive which in a sense is creating, um, permanence, like looking towards the future, given, you know, yeah, given that so many people, you know, on Manus are trapped in this state of, of limbo, or of waiting, or of, you know, transience, or of, yeah, that it, it seems like an incredibly important and powerful project for so many reasons, and unfortunately we are going to have to wrap up, but Um, Would you be able to tell us, how can listeners find out more?
4: Sure. So um, people can um, still head to the Ian Potter Museum of Art, which is at the University of Melbourne, or else they can go to um, the Melbourne Law School um, up until Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, um, if people search the Liquid Architecture site for the Manus Recording Project Collective, they can find that archive that uh, we've been talking about. And um, I think over the next few weeks, um, if people are looking there, they'll also be able to start to hear some of the recordings that we might be putting online and also finding out what we'll be doing um, with the archive in the long term.
0: Amazing. Thanks so much, Andre, for talking with us today. And we'd love to have you back on sometime to talk about the work of Behind the Wire more broadly.
4: uh, Thanks thanks so much for having me
0: Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to 3 Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, with me, Em, Shahazad, Apech, and now we're joined in the studio once again by the wonderful Raquel Willis um so yeah we for listeners who were tuned in last week um we had our a part one discussion with Raquel then and she's so generously agreed to come back into the studio to have a chat with us this morning um Raquel is a phenomenal black queer trans activist from the states um who's only here for a few more days so yeah we're really blessed to have a chat again this morning
7: Yes, thank you so much. I feel like I'm already a part of the crew, and honestly, I'm back because I like talking.
5: <laughs> 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 yeah. We like to hear you. That's good.
0: <laughs> oh, I just actually I forgot to back announce the last track. So that was um, I play that song quite often. It's Purple Sway by Sophie Groffy, one of my absolute favourite um, artist based in Nam at the moment. Um, but who wants to kick off the conversation this morning?
1: Well, um, so we were just speaking about the trans legal service providers here. Um, So I suppose, could we kick off with that? Like, so with the work that you do with the uh, Trans Law Center in
7: the US? Yeah. um, So I, I am a national organizer with the Transgender Law Center. And what really drew me to really start working at the organization about two years ago was just kind of this dedication to ensuring that trans and gender nonconforming people have access to living their most authentic lives. Um and and it's been great to witness. So the the organization has been around since two thousand two in the United States and a lot of the work has focused on impact litigation. So obviously moving cases that would kind of set a precedence for how trans and gender non conforming folks should be treated in the US um, You know, but I think one thing that's been so important that has shifted over the last few years is an emphasis on how we actually get resources to communities of color. And so admittedly, you know, many communities of color, especially black communities are like, very wary of anything kind of saying that it's going to represent them legally because we have been so burned by the legal system in all of our various countries right and so so it's important to bring in this organizing element and now we have some amazing dope programs the dope is California slang um, <laughs> programs, just uh, focusing on these most impacted communities. So I am so excited for my colleague, Ola Saze, who started an amazing project called the Black LGBT Migrant Project, focusing on the experiences of black LGBTQ migrants in, in the United States, I just uh, launched a project called Black Trans Circles focusing on healing justice and violence prevention for black trans women in areas that have had a, uh, high rates of violence and murder. So so we've really expanded and, and I'm excited to see where we continue to grow.
0: Mm. It's really interesting to hear you say that the, that the Trans Law Centre that you work with does a lot of strategic litigation um, as well as obviously, you know, direct service delivery and support for community as well and how those things go hand in hand of both. You know, it's interesting. This I, I sometimes think about this tension between reform or like, you know, doing what we can here and now within these systems and then also looking beyond that and you know how can we for example use litigation to try to create new pathways um how can we also create spaces totally outside of the justice system um as well to create other yeah possibilities and ways of being with each other and supporting each other um does anyone want to pick up on that though
7: but. well you know I, I i totally agree i mean i i think that one of the biggest um kind of dialogues that are kind of plaguing our communities is between folks who wholeheartedly believe in reform and folks who wholeheartedly believe in abolition, right? And I think, you know, we lose a lot of sleep over those conversations when really a lot of times they, they have uh, there are plenty of connections that can be made between both of those efforts, right? Like we need folks, um, I believe that we need folks, who are kind of dismantling from the inside and we need folks who are, who are bringing that effort from the outside as well. Right. We need as many hands on deck as possible. And, you know, I think one of the kind of scary things about that, particularly for folks on the abolition side is, well, how do we know that you are still invested in this cause full, full heartedly? Right. How do we know that you won't be, um, assumed by white supremacy or cis sexism or the patriarch or all of these different systems um, if you don't stay in communication with us right if you don't continue to strategize with us even when you're on the inside
5: mm.
1: well i, I, I suppose we we're talking a bit about this uh this morning abolition stuff and especially the stuff that's been going on with the prison strike yeah absolutely did you want to talk a bit about prison strike
7: yeah. Yes, well you know, I admittedly I'm I'm not as I guess um aware of all of the details, um, but I, I have been kind of boosting it on social media because mm-hmm. I, I think that um one of the biggest issues that we have is, is this kind of respectability on who deserves to to have a full life in, in our countries all across the world, right? And so folks who are on the inside, we know that there are so many snor- <laughs> snares and toils that get our people, people of color, marginalized folks on the inside of these systems, on the inside of prisons, on the inside of jails, in the um, immigration systems. And oftentimes, the general public, you know, kind of turns their cheek towards those issues and and fall into these ideas around who deserves to live and who doesn't. And so... I am so wholeheartedly behind the folks who are, uh, or who were lifting up the prison strike. It ended on, uh, September 21st. Um, but I, I think that they did some brilliant work and there was a lot of planning that went into that, right? So, so, I mean, to be on the inside, to be, folks who are so marginalized and still hold up the the banner of of um authenticity of of worthiness is is so important and i'm so proud of the folks who are involved with that
1: mm. um and i suppose it sort of kind of links back to what happens in australia sort of with um the Janine sort of abolition abolitionist movement here mm-hmm. um but You know, if we look at, like, the statistics in Australia, so Aboriginal people are the most incarcerated people in the world and there's been, I suppose, just using the sort of ideas that uh, Mariki Onus, for example, Mariki Onus talks about, where, you know, she she highlights the fact that, you know, Australia was founded as a penal colony. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the very idea of the state is sort of surrounded around, you know, the prison system or the prison complex, you know. And I suppose just thinking about Australia and the u s and how black and brown bodies are incarcerated um, and targeted, and that sort of thing you know you 've been here for two weeks what, what What can you see in in sort of solid building solidarity networks or like strengthening solidarity networks between the u s and australia
7: why you know i think I'll kind of back up a little bit, because I I think I was telling y'all earlier, right, I feel like I've kind of gotten a crash course on um, social justice here in in Australia and the history. And it has been so eye opening to see so, so much of the Aboriginal struggle here in the United States does mirror many aspects of different communities. I see a lot of um, actually, kind of a mixture of experiences from Native American experiences and, and also, um, Black American experiences, folks who, <clears throat> like myself, are, um, descendants of, of enslaved people, formerly enslaved people. So, you know, I, I think that, what I want to encourage people to do is continue to learn about the struggles that are happening all across the world. I think for Americans, there is such a, a bubble that kind of keeps us only focused on our issues um, happening kind of domestically, but anti-blackness is global it's pervasive it has been around for many 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 centuries Mm -hmm. and we can't act as if these instances of hate um such as what happened to leop goni 11 years ago there was a memorial for him um outside of parliament yesterday we can't act as if that's isolated from instances of violence and police brutality that happened um, to Trayvon Martin, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or to Mike Brown, or to even the black transgender women that I so heavily rallied behind, um, like a young woman named China Doll Dupree. Um, so it's, it's so important for us to look at those connections and understand, and also understand the ways that even within our communities, we have kind of taken on some of um, these uh, white supremacist ideals around mm-hmm. domination around what violence looks like, right? So we've got to hold not only the state violence conversation, we've got to hold what interpersonal violence looks like, what family violence looks like. And I, I was so thankful to meet with um, the amazing, brilliant Aboriginal women who work at JIRA the other day, right, and, and, and learn about their experiences. But all of this is connected. Um, and so I think that the ways that we still kind of um, feed into these patriarchal ideals of of who deserves saving, we often only focus on a certain type of person. We only focus on cisgender heterosexual men who have experienced violence at the hands of the state.
1: Hmm. Um, and just that idea of, like, just white supremacy in general and how... And, and how anti-blackness is so essential to whiteness, to defining whiteness. Um, it's so essential to maintaining the imperial world order. It's so essential to maintaining the power, well, like power structures in, in general. I don't know really where I was going with that. I just wanted uh, to say that I hate anti-blackness.
5: I think I see what you mean, what you're saying. of um, mm. So in, in one part is more (coughs) just about a disunited black community. When I say black community, it's like in the whole, the whole world, right? Mm. So all black people, our struggles are quite similar. We are, um, sort of kept at the bottom of the pile, Mm. um, over policed and discriminated against in so many ways and systematically as well. Um, infrastructure seems to be built against us. So, um, it, it, It it all just it all just goes to, I don't know. It's I feel like it's it's an ideology that has just taken decades and decades to be sort of stamped into our minds. Whereby um, even with some young people I've dealt with, and even myself in younger days, I've I've let that get to me where I felt I was less than. What the next person or then the, what the white man is. And, but that takes, it does take some work to actually know, you know what, I am equal. I am, I am worthy. And this is what I'm worried about that, um, even through our generations coming up and everything, always having to warn kids like, Hey, you know what, when you're out there in the world, your life doesn't mean as much. Always be careful. Always be that. So I think to, to your point, Raquel, that I, I feel like that's where, stems from that's where it starts from and if we were to look at it even say economically right um your economic status even on a on a world level can directly can be directly linked to how you're treated by everyone else around you right mm-hmm. and um if we even to think all the way back to africa and in in media and everything, what do you see? All you see is war and turmoil, but they don't show you all this beautiful rivers, the nice landscape, the greenery and the arable mm. lands, everything, and the good mountains and all of that. So, yes, it's all so linked, and unfortunately, there's just not enough time to even, like, try and like, you know, mm. um, untangle all of this. So, yes, <laughs> I just thought I'd just add that on there.
7: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I you know, to your point, blackness is is so expansive. I mean, I think that that is maybe the biggest takeaway I have from from my visit here to to Australia, um, which I learned does not exist, <laughs> yeah. um, which is, you know, some, some brilliant people, um, got together last night, um, Ida Ali and, and who I know personally, but, but a lot of, um, her friends got together last night and, and and are this amazing art collective and had an event at melbourne fringe festival just about um reclaiming the naming um and i wish i knew everyone's names but it was so powerful to me you know to to see such a display of expansive blackness to Mm -hmm. see you know indigenous folks on stage you know sharing their culture sharing their history alongside folks who are african immigrants folks who were born here just all of that beautiful brilliance um, is something I want to see on a on a global level, and I think that that's a testament to it. Um, but I, I guess I'll just finish off by saying that you know I think of, with all of the struggles, with all of the hardships, all of the systems plaguing black black communities and blackness in general, we've got to elevate the joy and the resilience and the power Absolutely. over all of that yes. stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Um, and that it's like an ongoing struggle that won't, that doesn't end in our lifetime.
5: No, it doesn't. Yeah. You just have to add your part and like Raquel says, bring the joy and the love and the happiness and for that, just dance your way out. <laughs>
1: Um, And I think that's all we have time for because it's actually 8.30 and we're supposed to be out of here. Um, But, Raquel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts and your time with us. Um, And we we, we hope we can stay in contact. (laughs) But you've been listening to Thursday Breakfast. Tune in tomorrow for Friday Breakfast. And next up we have Lost in Science.